students that are in college today are probably one of the best predictors of where food is going for the future. And if you look at that, you have got, again, contract management companies and a lot of independent college and universities as well declaring that 50% of their menu will be sourced in plant-based that it'll be a one-for-one, a one-for-one with meat. And I think this is Sodexo's rally cry, actually, with Chef Rob Morasco that I mentioned earlier. This is his rally cry and his company's rally cry, one-for-one, their offerings on plant-based and traditional meat items will be one-for-one. Welcome to Winning at Work, the podcast for foodies, founders, and food and beverage professionals. You know, if you wanted to discover a new brand, a new food or beverage to try, there are literally thousands of companies out there. It is very difficult to do that. That's why we curate the different, the better, and the special brands here each and every week on the podcast so you don't have to do the heavy lifting. You can just discover the new food or beverage that you want to try. If you're a founder, and you're looking to connect with other like-minded executives, we make that very easy as we build our community. And if you just work in the food and beverage industry and you're looking for fresh inspiration, we have that here in spades. This podcast is sponsored by Temple. Temple can help your brand attract consumers so you can drive that product off the shelf. Temple can help you attract buyers and distributors So you can expand your retail footprint or expand into retail and or food service. And Temple attracts employees to your great company with your purpose and your mission. Let that sell. Let that be what attracts. We can show you how to do that. Just click on the attract button in the show notes for a free consultation with me and discover how you can start winning at work. Welcome to Winning at Work, everybody. It is Tony, and do I love talking to experts, whether it's in retail, grocery, or food service. And I would love to get into this argument with someone, not today, but which is the better place to launch your business, in retail or food service? When I talk to food service experts, they're going to tell you food service is absolutely one of the best places to start or launch and then learn how to scale. And today I have Julie Swift and she is the food service expert. She's got more than 30 years sales and marketing experience within food service. She's an expert in broker effectiveness and sales and marketing, understanding, you know, how to approach things digitally, how to focus on customer reach, um, looking at white space expansion. We all know white space is a great place to explore and innovate. Uh, she worked for French's Food Company, uh, McCormick and Company, uh, on the food service leadership team. Uh, most recently at Waypoint, which was a sales and marketing agency, and very importantly, she is the founder of the Food Service Women's Alliance, or FWA. And you know, broadly speaking, FWA is focused on empowering all women to gain autonomy over their own food service career growth. So I am just so thrilled to have Julie here today. Welcome in. Thank you, Tony. I'm a big fan of the podcast. And so I was absolutely thrilled when you asked me to join you. 
Oh, 100%. Well, you know, from all the people I'm talking to, your name kept coming up. And they said, Tony, you got to talk to Julie. So, hey, no pressure. <laughs> That's nice to How's hear. That I to think. start, right? <laughs> White knuckles ensue. Um, right. So tell us what what have you been working on lately through your travels and some of your uh, new customers and brands? What are you working on? What are you focused on these days? Yeah, thanks for asking. I um, I have been having the time of my life this last year. I have gotten to work on a lot of different brands and a lot of different businesses with some really great professionals in this industry that I truly love. And I would say been working on everything from early stage brands and how to really scale the food service landscape, some mid-stage brands that are stalled for whatever reason. And that reason usually sets between uh, the two ears of somebody on that team. <laughs> and the um, you know Fortune 500 brands that are looking to make a broker transition or looking to scale a different type of go-to-market strategy for um, an elevated white space adventure. Um, so it's really been all of that and everything in between. Um, what I would say is the industry is in this moment of kind of that space between sheer terror and sheer elation. Um, we've just <laughs> come out of the, yeah, truly like the worst catastrophic event that can happen, the pandemic, um, to our world, but most especially really our industry, it really knocked our feet out from under us. But the beauty of it is it was a major share stealing window it was a major brand loyalty window. It was a major window of transitioning into digital communication, social media. Um, the consumer really brought the industry along in these places. And it's just been a fascinating time to be part of the food service industry. And you're literally right in the middle of it. And I love what you said about the elevated white space experience. I, I kind of hope we can get into that or maybe some of the, you know, trends that you're seeing in that space. Um, just kind of broadly speaking, what trends are you experiencing or are your brands experiencing right now in food service? Yeah, um, it's really a double down on what we've known all along, but we weren't necessarily putting our resources against it. And the we I'm referring to is not only the manufacturer, but the distributors and the broker community. And that kind of it factor is really bringing solutions, viable solutions to the food service operator. So I think in the past, what you would have seen is, um, okay, yeah, we're going to go after this. And these are the drivers of our business. And by the way, let's figure out you know, like, what's the thing that makes it good for the operator? But in this moment, in this time, it really is about leading with that and backfilling your strategy, if you're a manufacturer, distributor, or broker, to that operator journey and what the operator really needs to interact with your product, to purchase your product, to menu your product, to convince their consumer, their patron that, that visits their restaurant or their college campus or the hospital dining room, why do I want to order this? So manufacturers, you know, the entire industry really 
are having to start from that point instead of sort of defaulting into, oh, and by the way, this is a good operator solution because. So that's a real, you know, a real shift in the industry. And I love it because it's what we should have been focusing on all along. I mean, it makes perfect sense. It's what every other sales and marketing professional focuses on, right? When they go to market, they think about the end user, in this case, the operator. And now you're just saying it's it's start with the operator and what do they need? And then you just kind of work back from there. So kind of off the cuff, what do you think are some of the you know top two, three things that you're hearing that operators are extremely interested in right now? Yeah, so uh, I'm really focused on, and by the way, no two manufacturers are the same. Um, And that's something that if I didn't already know that, you know, going into my business, I certainly know it now. There is no one size fits all. So it looks a little bit different for everyone. But it really is about understanding, you know, get in that boardroom together, huddle up and have honest and open conversation, hopefully across a diverse thinking group of people. So if if everybody in the room looks the same, you're in the wrong room Um, or you pull the wrong people into the room. Get people who've got differing, differing opinions and get those, make it a safe place for those opinions to come out. And then once they come out, use those decisions, uh, those opinions to make better decisions. So a lot of times There is a focus in on, hey, we tried that before. Um, Hey, uh, Joe or Jill will never approve this. So even in those two comments, which I pretty consistently hear, (laughs) even in those two comments sits the very reason why getting to the pure focus of what the operator needs is unfortunately not happening as often as it should. So the way I usually approach that is to say, okay, so you're telling me that we need to adjust this thinking for Jill. Um, So you're telling me that if we bring Jill an idea that is going to have five times the return on investment than anything you've done in the last four or five years, Jill's going to say no to that? (laughs) Silence, right? That's usually what I met with. Well, and to your point, most of the problems start between the two ears. And I love what you said about your stakeholder group. It is very important that you have all of the stakeholders in these meetings, all of them. Definitely, definitely. And then from there, it is about allowing yourself to take the guardrails down. Just allow yourself to think, you know, I know when I was with French's and we would talk about bringing new products to market, the first thing that came to my mind was, well, the plant can't do that. Um, That's a guardrail. Get rid of it. Um, I don't care if we have to knock out a wall in the plant. If the opportunity is good enough, big enough and bad enough, um, we'll be out there laying bricks and mortar. So, It really is about allowing yourself to go there and think about what's really right for the business. And somebody gave me some great advice, Tony, years ago, and I've never forgotten it. It was in my first sales role. And the person said to me, Julie, I want you to look around at what other salespeople are doing. I want you to pay really, really close attention to that. And I I don't want you to do any of that. (laughs) I was like, wait a minute. (laughs) Don't emulate that. Wait, what? What? And that's where they kind of said to me, you know what? 
the best thing you have to offer is your knowledge and your authenticity in this arena. There is a sales protocols all over the place. And yes, there are definitely some key steps like be sure you close, be sure you follow up, be sure you don't give up, you know, all of those kinds of things. But let it be you. Come with the you in that moment. And that's really what has to happen with companies. Stop looking around at what everybody else is doing. It doesn't matter. If there is a different go-to-market strategy, a different go-to-market channel that you've never utilized before, it's going to be scary, but it's going to be okay. So think about what you've really got to do to get that done. And too many times what I see is see a manufacturer go out and hire a broker and they'll expect the broker to do everything. Like, look, I'm going to hand this business over to them. I'm going to check in with them once a quarter. I'm going to make sure things are on track. Eh, I don't know very many times that leads to success. No, it's not. It's not. Well, you've kind of touched on a few things here. First of all, I love that your consulting approach, and I think people can kind of get that vibe just from talking to you, is that you really are that voice in the room that sometimes needs to be there because you're not, you know, wed to one party or the other. So I really like that you can come in as that third party objective person and kind of keep the inspiration, keep the ideas moving. So I think that is hugely important, particularly if companies are struggling, like you say, to get a new idea going or to get a new product out the door. I think that's a, a great, you know, reason for, you know, this kind of consulting. Um, but you've started touching on a little bit about your own sales and marketing approach. Can you maybe open that up a little bit more? Tell me a little bit more about like how you would approach, how you would help a new food product go through a kind of their sales and marketing approach that want to get into food service and or scale. Sure. <clears throat> and what you said in the lead in, by the way, about uh, anybody in food service is going to tell you to go to food service first. I probably am an opposing person to that insight, uh, although okay, I would so agree that, with so you. Good. I would love to hear why, because I, I, I literally hear both sides of this all the time. Right, right. So it really depends on the product. It really it depends, depends on the product. Right, yeah. And if it is a high menu adoption type item, you know, I think about Buffalo Wings. I manage the Frank's Red Hot brand. And buffalo wings were a big deal in restaurants long before people were making buffalo wings at home. The restaurant business was significantly larger than the consumer business at that point. So the leverageability of going to food service first leveraged that retail and consumer business, which is probably double the size of the food service business now. I really don't know. But it really depends on the product. So uh, I digress. Your your question about sales and marketing, again, this this is not a one size fits all. So if you were to ask me, hey Julie, send me a, you know, send me a capabilities presentation, it would be two slides and it would just kind of say the basic things that you use to intro me. Where I really get into the sales and marketing mix is the first thing is to identify and assess the language barrier that lives inside the building, inside that manufacturer, distributor, or broker, and truly understand where the potholes are. And often it is that sales and marketing are speaking different languages. And so there's a gap there. 
salespeople, the really good ones, are thinking about like, how am I gonna, how am I gonna make my bonus? Well, there are key drivers, there are winners in every portfolio that you know the items and the brands in that portfolio that are gonna make your number. You know those January 1st. Then there are the strategic items that in order to lay solid groundwork for the next three to five years, there are some things you're gonna have to do to really focus on strategy. A lot of times it's getting the sales and marketing people in the same room and letting them know that they really are working toward the same thing. They just don't know it. So there's a language barrier. The same thing exists in the broker world with the manufacturer. There's a gap there between what the manufacturer needs the broker to do and what the broker needs from the manufacturer in order to do what they do best. So I'm, I mean, it's kind of a love connection, if you will, like it's a dating <laughs> site and <laughs> we've got we've to get on here and we make you see how rights. compatible you are with each other. Well, this is what has always kind of struck me as a, as a conundrum. And maybe you can kind of help sort this out. But what comes first? Do you, do you have to have the idea? Do you have to enter into the white space and create something? Or do you have to have that relationship with the distributor first? Or do you really need to have those operators that are on board that want the distributor, the broker to start you know, supplying and stocking and bringing this in so they can start ordering. This is a, it's a complicated space because you can't just deal directly, right? With the operator, you have to go through distributors and brokers. So where do you start? I always think you have to start from the boardroom, but the boardroom's got to be absolutely, the walls have got to be papered with insights. So you've got to have the insights from the distributor. You've got to have the insights from the operator and ideally from the consumer. The greatest influence with the operator is their customers. So that's that would be my perfect storm, would be able to have that conversation inside that boardroom with all of those insights lined up. And even, okay, let's bring up the things that we've tried that have not worked. Let's talk about those. Let's get them out in the open. And then it really is getting everybody on the same page. When this exercise happens, it's so common for manufacturers to believe their biggest competitors are on the outside of that boardroom, but their biggest competition sits inside the boardroom. It does. It's just the competing ideas and some of the wrong ideas. Well, I, let's go granular for a minute because I've seen a lot of I've seen, I've read, and it's some some of it's on LinkedIn, the the push for sustainable seafood, for example. Just that's a for example. How would you approach something like that? You mentioned you really want that consumer data. So let's say you've got a sustainable seafood product. Where do you go from there? Having that that knowledge that maybe the consumer is more interested in that. Identify the early adopters in terms of food service operators. For sustainable seafood, the non-commercial sector are the early adopters. There are some great folks out there. Um, that would be your, you know, college and university, business, dining, um, even healthcare, um, cafeteria feeding, not patient tray, but cafeteria feeding. And 
a really early adopter in this space was uh, Compass Group, uh, specifically Eurest. I've also seen, you know, Sodexo, a very early adopter in this space as well with Chef Rob Morasco, who's led culinary over there for a great deal of time. Um, Chef Chris Ivans-Brown at Eurest. Um, these folks were talking about sustainable seafood 10, 12 years ago and recognizing the importance along with um, cutting waste in food service. Like it's, it's all connected. It's not just about sustainable seafood. It's about sustainability in general. Correct. So much so both of those companies have very formalized processes for sustainability. So those early adopters kind of help guide and intro more consumers into that space as they experience sustainable seafood where they go to school, where they work, where they visit someone in the hospital, and so on. Yeah, I love that, particularly focusing on the colleges because you can really introduce these ideas, the early adopters, because you know that demographic is very interested in sustainability. So that makes perfect sense. Right. And it is a bit like, um, look, here's a short story for you. Back in the day when I was managing the Frank's Red Hot brand, we were trying to figure out in food service how to really get this brand on menus. And I spent the first half of my career at French's in marketing and the second half of my career in sales, sales leadership and leadership team. And while I was in the marketing side of it, I was sitting at my desk one day and got a phone call from a QSR chain um, that said, hey, we'd like to add a buffalo chicken sandwich to our menu, and we'd like your permission to use your brand. What? Permission? I'm thinking, okay, so your mind immediately goes, how many millions of dollars is this going to cost me? You know, so I said, absolutely. We'd love to support that. You know, what can I do to help? I'm trying to do everything except ask what the price tag is. And this individual finally volunteered, look, we don't want any kind of sponsorship or anything. We just need your permission. And which, which logo do you want us to use? And so on. That was an early adopter for taking the flavor of Buffalo from a wing to a sandwich. That one phone call (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> made changed my bonus for the next menu. 10 years. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> and it changed the course of eating. It did because it was an early adopter. What happened when this QSR chain rolled with it is that everybody looked at their menu and went, holy moly, <laughs> I've got no buffalo chicken sandwich on my menu. Like this popular flavor on wings, I'm going to start putting it on all of these things. So that early adopter really influenced. And I think in any specific category where you see a trend coming along that maybe starts as some kind of a fad or maybe it dials into a lifestyle choice that people are making, whether that's on the far end of indulgence or the other end of wellness, um, you know, we're really seeing that those folks that can grab a hold of that, whatever it is, and really promote it leads to exponential acceptance. Um, and this is where trends turn to mainstream. 
Julie, do you want to talk at all about the lifestyle brand or the lifestyle experience? Because we do see that quite a bit in CPG and in retail. How is that showing up in food service or does it? I think it um, continues to evolve in food service. And I frankly believe that we have millennials to thank for that because they're the first generation to come along and demand more from our food chain and the sources by which we supply that food chain. Um, So I'm eternally grateful myself for a healthier lifestyle because of millennials. But I would also say that they are really towing the line in bringing this expanded approach kind of where like at one time, the only time you saw new products really evolving were from the great big, huge manufacturers that span several categories. Now you have all these startups and early stage brands that are very supremely focused on this wellness and lifestyle choice. So it's just evolved, I feel like, even more through the pandemic. And I feel like minority-owned and women-owned businesses are well are more welcome in our industry today than they've ever been. And I think it's because of the evolution of better for you doesn't have to come from the big box manufacturers. Do you have any opinions on what's happening with plant-based? Do you think it's going to stay neutral? Do you think it's going to regain its footing? You mentioned, you know, we've had a lot of early adopters and the millennials have done a great job with this better for you push. Where do you see, or what do you see happening in plant-based in your opinion? Well, if you read the news, you might have one opinion. If you go on social media, you might have another. My sense from being in the food industry all these years is there is no reverse gear for plant-based. How far it will go and how far it will get to, I'm really unclear on that. But what I know is the students that are in college today are probably one of the best predictors of where food is going for the future. And if you look at that, you have got, again, contract management companies and a lot of independent college and universities as well declaring that 50% of their menu will be sourced in plant-based, that it'll be a one-for-one, a one-for-one with meat. And I think this is Sodexo's rally cry, actually, with Chef Rob Morasco that I mentioned earlier. This is his rally cry and his company's rally cry, one-for-one, their offerings on plant-based and and traditional meat items will be one-for-one. So you can just swap out one for one for any any ingredient that you want to create for the space. Specifically for meat. So if you think about walking up to um, the sandwich counter at a campus and there is a Reuben sandwich, there is the traditional turkey and Swiss, there would be plant-based options for both of those going forward. So that idea of 
a burger for a burger has kind of already been introduced. It's it's rare to go to a casual dining or mid-scale restaurant that doesn't offer a vegetarian or vegan option for a burger. So it seems reasonable to me to think that you're not going to be able to digress that trend. Um, I, I think it's alive and well. I'm happy to see it. I feel like it's making us all better. I feel like it's making the planet better. Um, and I'm a flexitarian, so I'm not a vegetarian or um, or vegan. But I do believe there are true health benefits. The ingredient statements are getting cleaner on some of these that didn't have quite the yes. clean ingredients they should. Correct. So again, it's all nudging toward the collective of there's a very strong, very solid group of people out there who are demanding it. And these manufacturers are really rising to that demand. Yeah. Oh, I think you, I I think you answered that well. And that's kind of what I was thinking too, with the younger, you know, millennial that they've, they want it. It's at the college level now, and it's just going to continue right as they get into the workforce. So we're going to have to see it in more and more places. Um, as we begin to wrap up, I'm curious because you are on the front lines, you are seeing things that are happening. Put your 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 crystal ball in front of you. What trends do you really see evolving in food service in the coming years? The best the best you can. What do you see happening? Oh gosh. <laughs> Man, that's so tough. It's Everyone wants to know the future. I mean, who doesn't? Yeah. You know, I don't spend a lot of time looking in the crystal ball. I mean, like I've always got my eyes in the windshield to look what's like right in front of me. But there is so much movement going on in the industry right now. To me, it's really hard to grab hold of like, hey, here is the next big trend that is just going to set the world on fire I'm drawing a total blank. No, you're not drawing a blank. I think you're being very realistic. Well, as we um, wrap up, Julie, is there any general advice or just any, you know, learning that you've had with your brands that you would love to share to the the platform at this point as we as we wrap up? Yeah, I'd be happy to. And I'll tell you, if I could control that crystal ball, if I could say, what do I want for this industry and what do I hope for for this industry, it would be to see a more diverse, equitable, inclusive environment where everyone can have a sense of belonging. The industry is very upside down and backwards in this space. And that is just the raw and honest truth. Um, So what I would hope for for the industry would be that we're able to address and sort of course correct the current state of like divergent goals between particularly women and food service companies to really work together in achieving mutually beneficial outcomes. To answer your last question, companies that are on this journey are far more successful. I mean, statistically, look at the facts. By adopting and adapting to a more inclusive workspace that is equitable for all people. So 
the goal here would be that we are able to, A, raise our hand and say, hey, you know what? Now I've seen it. I can't unsee it. We were able to bring companies to the table because, look, all day long we can work as women and marginalized people to polish our skills, to bring our uh, managerial levels up, um, and to really be able to you know, fill any position that is open. But if we go into companies where even that one piece is not in place, which is inclusivity, then it doesn't matter how polished we are. It doesn't matter how much we've studied or invested in ourselves or jumped on the leadership development plan or whatever that might look like. It, it will fall, you know, moot on an organization that is not adapting to inclusivity. So if I had one wish for this industry, that would be my wish. Well, and it's great too, because culture sells. And I have said that for some time that when a company is on the market and they are trying to attract the very best people, the, the, the traditional job description does not do a good enough job of explaining and why it, it doesn't even come close which is why I've gone to great lengths to create something totally different and unique so a company can allow the, um, the marketplace to sample, to, to go into trial, if you will, of that company's culture. Because the right culture attracts people who want to thrive and will thrive in that environment. And if a company is totally blind to that, then they ultimately are not going to be successful. And that's back to your point. Statistically, they're just not going to do as well. And eventually, um, when they hit their head against the wall enough times, you know, they will learn and they will adapt. Julie, um, it's been great to spend a little more time with you. You are the, the consummate professional and you just have this great kind of poise about yourself. And I, I really hope that, you know, more companies get a chance to, kind of connect with you and kind of learn how you can help them through their their brand journey, you know, throughout food service. What's the very best way for people to to contact you or to find you? Well, thank you, Tony. I so appreciate that. Um, and I'm very grateful to be here on the podcast with you. I love what you're doing in that space that you just described. The best way to reach me would be to go to my website, julie-swift.com, or to reach out to me on LinkedIn, Julie Swift on LinkedIn. Couldn't be easier. Um, great having you here. And who knows, maybe we'll, um, we'll do some more collaborations. I'm starting to do some live streams. Perhaps we can have some of your, uh, your clients on here as well. We can kind of walk through their journey and how they're growing. I love to hear, you know, directly from the brands and how they're, you know, adapting and, uh, and winning at work. And it's a great, um, you know, it's a great way to bring all those voices together, you know, on, under one platform. Julie, thank you so much for being here today. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate the opportunity.